Welcome to Ask Me Anything About Employment. This is not a presentation, but a series of interactive question and answer sessions where you can ask questions about employment. Today's expert is Dr. Kim User, Executive Director of the Center for Psychiatric Rehabilitation and a clinical psychologist. Dr. Muser has developed or studied programs focusing on a broad range of topics, including returning to work or school, collaborating with families, illness management and recovery, social skills training, addressing substance abuse, trauma, PTSD, and improving cognitive function. Over the next hour, Dr. Muser will take your questions. We will alternate between questions submitted during registration and questions from anyone who has joined us today. To ask a question, please indicate that you would like to ask by typing in the chat box. When your name is called upon, press the star key twice on your phone to unmute yourself. Welcome, Dr. Muser. Thank you, David. It's great to be here. We thought that we would start today's talk uh, with one of the questions that was sent in to us uh, ahead of time. And so I'll start by reading the question and then providing my answer. The question is, how does one navigate through the past walkouts criminal history records, rough periods of life and career, etc., and have the self-esteem and desire to take it all on again after mistakes have been made and confidence has been diminished. This is a, a tough question, and, and I certainly understand the, the difficulties of it. I think the most important thing is that hope is the constant companion that fuels the energy in the recovery process and the process of looking and finding work again. It's a process in terms of not just believing that there is something out there, work, meaningful work, community engagement, but knowing that it's there, and along with it, a better life. Social support from family members, friends, peers, and others can be critical to maintaining this hope and, and sticking with it in terms of job search and, and keeping jobs. Another important thing is self-compassion. Self-compassion refers to giving yourself a break, showing yourself the kind of compassion and the kind of understanding for the difficulties that you've been through that you would show to another person in a similar circumstance. Thank you, Dr. We'll be happy to take your question. And until then, I suppose you can take a second question that was submitted previously. Okay. This is a two-part question, and I'll answer both parts because I think that they really go together. The first part says... Do I disclose my mental illness to my employer? And then the second part is, when is someone ready to return to work? So for the first question about when do you disclose having a mental illness to an employer, there are two primary considerations that guide the decision to disclose about one's mental illness. The first one is whether you need a job-related accommodation. This is a kind of a modification in your work tasks or responsibilities or schedule that is critical in order for you to continue maintaining your job, managing your mental illness, while at the same time doing basic work that is expected uh, of you by your employer. Employers are required by law to give accommodations to people with disabilities, but in order to get an accommodation, of course, you need to explain to the employer that you have a disability. A second consideration is whether you want to disclose for personal reasons related to being your whole self at work and feeling more comfortable with people knowing certain aspects of your past experiences, such as uh, uh, mental health uh, challenges, as opposed to keeping that part of you as uh, a secret. Some people prefer to keep their mental health history 
um, as um, uh, a part of their personal um, history and not to share it uh, with others at work, whereas others actually feel more comfortable sharing certain parts about themselves, including those parts um, at work, because it makes them feel more complete at work. So those are the two considerations that guide disclosing about having a mental illness at work. The second part of the question was, when is someone ready to return to work? And the most important answer to that is when the person wants to work. When you want to work, that's the, your most important indicator of your ability to return to work. It's important to be able to have some ability to focus your thoughts and your concentration on work-related tasks, assuming that you're going to begin returning to work uh, part-time. And so you need to be able to sustain some attention and, and to get some work done. But other than that, the desire for work is the single most important factor that determines when you're ready to go to, back to work. Thank you for that answer, Dr. Muser. Uh, Akisha, if you could dial star star on your phone, we're ready for your question. Thanks so much. Hi, Dr. Muser. Hi. How are you? Good. Um, my question is um, really specific. So it's focusing on what kind of interventions do you use to help build uh, motivation and energy in clients that may um, may specifically have negative symptoms dealing with schizophrenia, so are often having that low level of energy. Um, that's the first part of it. And the second part is, in the process of doing that, how do you make sure to, to um, draw that line of distinction between acting as a therapist versus acting in the role of employment specialist? Well, those are uh, great, great questions, um, Akisha. Um, I think that the most important things in terms of uh, working on building motivation um, and building stamina in people who struggle with negative symptoms is trying to take things slowly, one step at a time, and to have a positive attitude uh, about the person's ability to gradually either relearn or take on uh, greater challenges um, and to invest greater energy in the, uh, the work that they're doing. Finding work that is related to the person's uh, uh, um, past experiences and interests um, is important because engaging somebody's attention um, can certainly be critical. Um, working out a schedule so that it becomes a planned part of the person's regular day, whether it's a schedule involved in the job search process or if work has been uh, obtained, uh, that the work is done on a regular basis and that the schedule includes uh, um, things uh, pertaining to getting up in the morning, getting ready on time, and, and the like, so that the person's day becomes uh, patterned um, over time and, and predictable. And, and eventually, the predictability of, of one's schedule, including both work as well as fun things, uh, can facilitate uh, looking forward to the day as, as well as reflecting back on it and enjoying certain positive uh, uh, moments. Another thing to do is when people have significant negative uh, symptoms and they may have limited amounts of, of energy, is to work on gradually extending the periods of time um, in which they work on particular tasks. Most everybody can extend the amount of time they work on a task if they schedule rest breaks and then gradually increase the distance or the time between those uh, rest breaks. So the most important thing that we find in terms of helping people cope with negative symptoms is focusing on the positive, identifying things that are related to their areas of interest, uh, working on gradually building up their uh, schedule in terms of uh, particular uh, things that they're doing with uh, plenty of uh, rest breaks um, in between, 
um, and focusing on increasing the amount of time uh, that they're able to attend to particular tasks. And that may include work tasks, but also uh, recreational tasks. People used to think that people with negative symptoms didn't have as much capacity to enjoy events, but we now know that enjoyment, the experience of pleasure, is something that can be learned with practice, like so many other skills. Well, thank you for your answer, Dr. Muser and Akisha, for your question. Dr. Muser, can you go for one of the prepared questions that you sure. submitted? Um, here's another question, very interesting one, and, and not an uncommon experience. The person writes, even though I am a VA and Indiana peer specialist, I stay as a volunteer because I live with command hallucination. For people who don't know, a command hallucination is a hallucination, like a voice that instructs or tells the person uh, to do something, and they can be very upsetting. Um, I have found that my best defense or coping strategy is to disengage or leave the place where this occurs. So my question is, how can I better combat or cope with this in a work setting? I've lost many jobs already, but I still want to try uh, to stay in the workplace. So, um, and let me talk about this. And first of all, to, as I noted earlier, to say that hearing voices, and including hearing voices that, that tell you to do things that you don't want to do, are not uncommon experiences. They happen in different mental illnesses. Uh, sometimes, uh, occasionally, they happen even in the general population. So it's not that unusual. So here are some different strategies that can help you cope with those voices without having to leave a work situation which can enable you to, to keep a, a job, which it, it sounds like that is, is related to your goal. Um, first of all, is to take an acceptance-based approach to uh, the voices, which is to accept the fact that you can't completely control when they occur and when they don't occur, but what you can control is your behavior. Just because you hear voices doesn't mean that you have to respond to them, to do what they tell you to do, or, or anything else. What you can do is attempt to just notice the voices, meaning you're not trying to suppress them, you're trying to acknowledge them, but not give them undue attention and not let them wreck your day or make you feel bad. In other words, just noticing the voices is sometimes easier to do than trying to make them go away or, or reacting to them. And then a related part of this is to remind yourself of what your goals are. Why are you at work? Why is being at work important? and to remind yourself that you're the one who's in control of one's behavior, not these voices. The voices actually have no power over you. They can be upsetting, but only to the degree uh, that you allow them to be upsetting. Uh, accepting them and the fact that you can't control everything that goes on in your mind, but you can control your behavior, is really one of the basic parts of a kind of therapy called acceptance and commitment therapy. That's proved to be very, very useful to people who have upsetting feelings and, and thoughts that, that they have difficulty having control over. And of course, the important thing here is that you have control over your behavior, and your behavior is directed by your goals and your values. And so that can help you accept when you hear voices uh, without having to feel that you need to uh, leave the situation or that you will uh, lose control. There are other strategies for dealing with voices. Uh, one kind of strategy is uh, positive self-talk, reminding yourself of personal strengths, of the fact that you're in charge, and so on, can be a way of countering the effects of voice. Use of relaxation strategies can also be helpful in terms of reducing uh, the extent to which uh, people hear uh, voices or the distress that they're associated with. Another thing is that 
when people engage in some kind of distracting activities. It could be talking to somebody else. It could be listening to music. Those kind of distracting opportunities, when feasible in the workplace setting, can also reduce uh, the severity or sometimes eliminate uh, voices, including command hallucinations. So those are some, and, and there are many other kinds of coping strategies that can enable people to deal with the experience of, of hearing voices without allowing it to affect their behavior and their work performance. Kelsey, we're ready for your question. Hello. Hello. Great. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Um, my question is about job development. I was curious what's the most effective approach to um, job development, specifically approaching employers for job placement, um, maybe a new employer for the first time. Um, of course, there are many, many strategies involved in, um, in job development, and there are some uh, very good materials that have been produced, including a, a video series uh, by my um, uh, colleagues at uh, Dartmouth who have created similar mater such materials um, related to their work in supported employment. Uh, the important things about job development include, um, as a job developer and an employment specialist, um, addressing professionally, um, being able to uh, uh, figure out a, a good time um, to uh, schedule a meeting with a prospective um, employer. Um, some of this has to do with whether job development is done individually for a particular client or whether it's more aimed at establishing contacts with potential employers and, and uh, potentially new employers within um, a particular area. So um, part of it uh, needs to be informed by that. Um, arranging to uh, meet with an employer at a time that's convenient with them um, and that is aimed at understanding both what their needs are and what their, in particular, what their workforce uh, needs are uh, can be a good way of identifying whether um, uh, there are potential jobs uh, that may uh, be matched to uh, the specific preferences uh, of consumers. Uh, it's important that these meetings uh, not be kept for uh, uh, not, not extend an extremely uh, uh, long period of time, it could be 10, 15, uh, or, or 20 minutes or, or, or so, um, and that the idea of the meeting is really to um, establish a connection which can then be uh, uh, f uh, followed up on um, in the uh, event of, uh, of uh, potential jobs being um, identified. Another thing that's always important to bear in mind in terms of job development is to use uh, the extended network of the uh, person who is the job developer, more broadly the vocational team, as well as to tap uh, the uh, possible network um, of the consumer and, and the consumer's families. We know that uh, many jobs that people obtain are obtained through connections with other people. And so it's through those connections that jobs uh, can often be uh, developed. Uh, and it's important to, to try to tap those jobs and to explore them um, similar to the way um, any other kind of job um, is developed. Thank you, Dr. Muser. Um, let's go ahead and take Lindsay's call. Hi. Um, so I have a question. I'm an employment support worker, and I recently got a client who has a lot of social anxieties, um, and she wants to pursue her career in uh, library information and technician. So she would like a career position, but she seems to have a lot of anxieties around teamwork, around people um, supervising her. So she says she has a lot of anxiety if people are almost watching over her shoulders. Even um, maybe I asked if she has anxieties about even people 
sitting maybe close beside her by a computer, she has some anxieties around that also. I wonder if you can give me maybe some strategies I can work with her. Absolutely. I'd be happy to. First of all, it's important to bear in mind that social anxiety disorder is actually the most common um, anxiety disorder and, and probably the most common psychiatric disorder, if, if you want to consider it a disorder, of all the possible disorders. So it's, it's very important for people to know that the anxiety that they experience um, is, is quite common and, and that other people experience it. People tend to develop social anxiety relatively early in life. Um, often the, the uh, onset is sometime in adolescence, and it can make people very, very uncomfortable. And even though people want to connect with others, it, it can inhibit or get in the way of connecting with others. But on the positive side, there are lots of effective strategies as, as well as treatment programs for, people, for helping people overcome their social anxiety. Some of the strategies for overcoming uh, social anxiety include uh, helping people practice and use uh, anxiety management or relaxation skills. Uh, for example, there's uh, a kind of a skill that's widely used in anxiety uh, disorder treatment programs uh, called breathing retraining. The idea of breathing retraining is that it teaches people how to slow down their rate of respiration in order to decrease their overall physiological arousal or overarousal, as the case often is in, in people with social anxiety disorder. When people get anxious, they often begin to hyperventilate. And this increases the oxygen to the brain, lightheadedness, and feelings of anxiety. So breathing retraining, which we teach as a skill and help people practice it as a skill, and, and then gradually they are able to learn how to use it in, in different kinds of situations, including social uh, situations, can reduce the sensitivity that people have by reducing their overall physiological arousal. And there are other relaxation-based approaches as well. A second strategy is helping people become more comfortable with different kinds of social situations. Role-playing, as in social skills training, when you have pretend situations and you have a person practice, sometimes practice again and again until it gets to the point where it feels kind of automatic. That can help reduce people's anxiety. You can imagine uh, what it was like doing something, something social maybe, the first time that you had to do it, and that you felt pretty anxious. But then after you did it three or four or five times, you became pretty comfortable with it, and the anxiety decreased. So, for example, if somebody felt anxious about being supervised, setting up role-play situations in which the person practiced responding to a supervisor, giving feedback, would be one way of decreasing the anxiety. And by helping them practice in role-play situations where you have a number of role-plays, one followed by the other, the person becomes more comfortable in the situation, and you can provide them with feedback to try to make sure that they are as effective as possible uh, in responding to that uh, um, uh, situation. A third thing about social anxiety, and this was, uh, I think, uh, um, alluded to in your description, is that people tend to have an exaggerated and often inaccurate perception of how other people view them. They feel that they're being scrutinized, and they often feel that they're being judged or evaluated more harshly by other people. So it's important to help people with social anxiety get feedback from other people about how they come across, and for you to provide feedback to, that other, to the person. Helping people realize that the thoughts and that the beliefs that they have about how others 
might be evaluating them are not always accurate and that they can test out, they can check out those thoughts and that they need to correct them when they're inaccurate can also reduce that sense of being scrutinized by others in different situations. This is part of what cognitive behavior therapy is about, helping people test out certain assumptions that they have. And in social anxiety treatment programs, often an important part of the program is getting people to give feedback about each other. And the feedback that people get from other people is almost always more benign, more positive than their own self-evaluations of how, of how they're doing. So I think it's very important to encourage people who have problems related to social anxiety to continue to pursue their goals and to assure them that, that there is a wide range of strategies to help them not just cope with their anxiety, but actually to, in many cases uh, to overcome it and, and to be comfortable in those kinds of situations that are important uh, for their work-related goals. Perfect. Thank you. The last point was really good. Thank you. Thank you again for asking your question, Lindsay. Um, Dr. Muser, let's take one of the previously submitted questions, and then we'll take Cecilia's. Okay. Um, this question was, how do you get someone you are concerned about who refuses help to seek treatment? And so this is a, a, a challenging question, and it's a question that's often asked by family members or siblings or spouses or a boyfriend or a girlfriend of, of somebody who may be having emotional difficulties. There are two basic strategies involved in helping someone in such a situation seek treatment. The first is uh, that it's very important to express your own concerns directly to the person. Um, by expressing your own concerns to explain to the person why you're worried and how that affects you and in as a matter of fact and direct uh, a way as possible. The second thing to do is to try to engage the person around particular goals or values that are important in their life and that they may be having difficulty pursuing or living a life consistent with their values because of the mental health problems that they're experiencing. If you can engage them around their goals or their values with the aim of helping them make progress towards goals and live more consistently with values that they may have, that can then bring mental health problems into focus and you can begin to explore with the person how perhaps taking very small steps to looking at different ways of dealing with the mental health problems could help the person achieve those goals. It's not important for the person to develop insight into having mental health problems or mental illness, um, nor is it important that they look at treatment for a mental illness as necessarily being treatment in that same way. Rather, the idea is to engage them around helping them make progress towards goals and identifying possible solutions that can be used to deal with obstacles that they're experiencing towards achieving those goals. If your connection with a person is around living the kind of life that they want to live and you're helping them try to make steps towards that, when mental health problems are present, the possibility of different treatment strategies that may help the person deal with those mental health problems quite naturally comes into the picture without you having to uh, force it in any particular way or, or it being coercive in any way. In that way, the person sees at least exploring mental health treatment options as something that's in their own best interest and something that can help them uh, uh, make more progress uh, towards their goals 
that they've been uh, m most recently thwarted in, in um, uh, working on. We have a question from Cecilia. So one of our consumers had a question. When you're working and you get frustrated or overwhelmed, what is the appropriate way to handle this? Or um, so, you know, employment specialists are human just like everybody else. And um, it's certainly easy to, um, to get frustrated because of the, the, the challenges of, of the job. Um, it depends a little bit on the nature of the frustration, but let me throw out um, a, a few ideas. Um, one is that uh, it certainly can be stressful um, uh, going all over town trying to uh, work up jobs uh, um, for, for people, trying to provide supports as, as, uh, as needed, and, and sometimes don't, things don't always go uh, according to plan. So I think it's important to build in either uh, rest breaks uh, a temporary uh, meditation, um, some periods of mindfulness, um, some times to uh, uh, do some relaxation strategies uh, throughout the day if you find that the, uh, the stress of the, the everyday uh, um, role in, of uh, being an employment uh, specialist or a vocational specialist um, is something that, um, uh, that builds up in, in an unpleasant and upsetting way. So the, the use of stress management strategies uh, can, be, uh, can be very helpful. I think it's also helpful to um, realize that the, in the nature of job seeking, helping people get jobs and, and keep, jo keep jobs, um, is one of the most difficult uh, tasks uh, for anybody to accomplish. It's, it's difficult to, for people to accomplish um, on their own. Um, the job market continues to be uh, a very competitive. It's, it's difficult if you don't have a disability. It's um, even more difficult if you have a disability. Um, and the role of, of helping a person with a disability uh, um, uh, obtain uh, uh, work and, and keep work um, is, is, is very challenging as well. And so similar to my comment earlier in terms of having uh, compassion for oneself, um, it's important um, to give yourself a break and to recognize the inherent challenges in, in terms of what you do and to avoid getting down on yourself um, excessively uh, when you're not as effective as, um, as you would like to be. Um, one final um, thought is that uh, work in terms of helping people find and keep jobs um, involves working with a lot of different people, of course. Um, it involves working with consumers, with their family members, with other employment specialists, with mental health team uh, members, uh, with employers, and, and other people in, in the general community. And so it's only natural that some of those interactions are going to be with people that aren't as satisfying or, or pleasant as, as you would like, and, and some of them may be downright annoying. And so when you're, you're faced with some of the, the challenges of dealing with, with other difficult people, I think that uh, it may be helpful to look at those experiences as potential lessons. Now, this is a way of kind of turning it around and saying, if you're getting really annoyed at something, is there a particular lesson uh, that that can teach you? And if, if you're working with somebody or there are people that you find uh, and you find them to be especially annoying or, 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 uh, or, or troubling, I think that asking yourself whether there is some kind of a lesson in this for you to learn, um, almost as though it's been designed, can, can turn it around and and that you may be able to find some wisdom in that situation. Another thing that can sometimes be helpful in, in dealing with uh, challenging people 
um, is uh, the use of certain meditative strategies or strategies drawn from positive psychology, such as uh, loving-kindness. Loving-kindness meditation is a kind of a, a meditation in which one deliberately wishes loving-kindness on other people around them. And um, paradoxically, it can work quite well in, in terms of shifting attitudes uh, when one wishes loving-kindness to another person who is uh, annoying or, or troubling in some other way in, in, in one's life. Um, and then last, I would say uh, social support again. This could be support from other employment specialists, uh, from family members and, and other people. Uh, we all need uh, a social support to, to uh, deal with the, the stresses of, of our lives. And, and that could be another uh, important ingredient in, in terms of, uh, of being successful in managing all the challenges of that. Dr. Muser, go ahead and take one of the other previously submitted questions. All right. And we do have a good number of very good uh, questions as well. So here's a question that says, how do you manage making requests for change in workload when everyone in your office has an unmanageable or high workload, but when due to your anxiety, due to your stress level, yours may be more than theirs and may be causing distress and health problems. Language, accommodation, or when do you just suck it up and use more personal supports to cope? So I think this is a, a really important question. It has to do with the decision of when do you decide to seek for an accommodation, an accommodation due to stress. And, and when do you decide that maybe what you really need to do is to somehow try to figure out how to manage that stress more, even more effectively? So um, let's take the first part of the question uh, to begin with, which is, should you disclose? And I think that if you disclose, of course, the nature of a disclosure in this case is uh, uh, seeking some kind of a, a modified work schedule or, or workload due to the high level of, of stress. Um, it's important to, to, of course, have disclosed um, having a, a, um, a, a psychiatric illness uh, to the employer, to the supervisor. And then it's important to present the request for disclosure um, in a matter-of-fact and non-apologetic man manner. It's important to have thought through the nature of the accommodation that you would like to have so you can at least begin the discussion uh, with a, a, a specific um, idea in mind in terms of what would make the job uh, more uh, manageable for you uh, to continue to, uh, to work there as an employer. You may also, alternatively, choose um, not to disclose and decide that what you really want to do is to try to bolster um, your coping abilities. Um, and we've talked earlier about the importance of having coping skills for a variety of different things, and, and some of them overlapping with uh, stress. Some of the uh, strategies here um, I, I've discussed before. So, for example, the ability to use relaxation um, exercises. And I think the way to look at relaxation is not just a matter of, of stretching out, but there are, there are particular exercises that may involve uh, breathing, uh, like the breathing retraining, muscular relaxation, tension, the use of... Uh, of, um, of imagery um, and other um, exercises that are based, for example, on meditation. It's important to look at, at these relaxation strategies as skills, just like any other skill, like learning to play a, a musical instrument or, or to play a sport, meaning that you get better at it the more you practice, and, and that initially when you practice, it's important to practice a particular relaxation skill in a setting that's comfortable and where you have control over it and to try to use that skill 
in a work-related or other stressful situation, only after you've had some comfort over it um, and you've developed some mastery um, of that skill. So there's relaxation strategies. There's the use of mindfulness-based uh, uh, approaches. Mindfulness-based approaches are based on the idea that uh, you can attend to what is going on around you in your environment, um, but you don't necessarily have to over-attend. You can let things come into your consciousness and let them slip out of your consciousness without necessarily buying those thoughts or becoming focused on them. So one of the important things in terms of dealing with stressful work environments is making a decision in terms of what's important to focus on and what do you not have to focus on. There may be certain things. They may be uh, uh, somewhat annoying or, or distractions, but it may be more important not to focus on them. And when they come into your attention to acknowledge them and then to let them fleet out of your attention without uh, giving them more, uh, more mind. Meditation, something that I mentioned earlier, is, is certainly, um, again, um, a skill um, that it, uh, can be developed. Um, it's typically used outside of work settings, but there are aspects of it that can be used um, in work. Um, being able to identify when you're talking to yourself and saying things that may not be very helpful and, and may not necessarily be accurate. In other words, challenging your own thinking that may lead to or even contribute to the stress. So, for example, saying, well, people shouldn't be that way. And the reality of it is that, well, we would like it if not everybody acted in a particular way, uh, but we don't necessarily have control over it. Or if you say, I, I can't stand it, this is in intolerable. Um, and, um, of course, you need to make a distinction between when you can stand it and when you can't, but in many cases, saying these kind of things, uh, this is what Albert, Albert Ellis would call awfulizing, saying these things is, is not especially helpful and, and increases the, the um, perception and the experience of, of stress. So um, being able to identify when you are talking to yourself in a way that is seeming to contribute or to add to the stress, as opposed to either um, soothing yourself um, or uh, ad adopting an approach in which you can let certain things uh, pass by without focusing on them unduly. All of those can be strategies that can, can help manage stress more effectively. And, of course, there is social support, very, very helpful in terms of managing uh, um, uh, stress. It, it may lead to different ways of, of thinking about things or additional stress management strategies. But even in the absence of, the, uh, of this, having somebody that you can talk with and including talking about things that are, are difficult, such as stress at, at work, um, can be useful um, and can be a way of, of relieving some of the stress that you experience. Uh, James, we're ready for your question. Yes, thank you. Uh, doctor, let me ask you this question. I'm not totally sure how to phrase it so it comes out right, but I'll give it a shot. You know, one of the things we want to do as job developers is um, and helping an individual return to the workforce or develop their career further is to encourage them to achieve or to achieve as much as they're capable at the moment. However, there's a risk behind that because how do I know when I'm over-encouraging? How do I tell if I'm, if I'm, when I should be backing off because I don't, want a, I don't want a client to start to decompensate because they're trying to please me and, and, and they don't know how to tell me that, um, you know, I can't cope with this. 
they don't even, maybe perhaps they don't even know they can't cope with that, or they're ashamed to, that they can't cope with that, or something like that. But you see kind of the, where I'm going with this, and I'm wondering what your thoughts would be on it. Right. Um, thanks for bringing it up. It's a, a very um, a very useful and, and, and thoughtful question. Um, in my experience working uh, w- with people, I don't think the risk of um, somebody working too hard and that leading to a symptom exacerbation, um, a, a decompensation, so to speak, or a relapse, in my experience, that does not happen uh, very often. And that the negative effects of pushing somebody too hard um, are more often um, that the person um, becomes somewhat um, less invested in, in work and in pursuing work, and, and that the process of pushing um, actually um, leads to, to more and more difficulties in terms of, of active collaborating. Um, the way I like to think of it is, um, in, with many clients that I work with, I like to, to sometimes uh, think of myself as a coach, and that what I the um, the basis of my relationship with the person is the uh, is the goal that the person has in in terms of the the kind of work that they want to have and the, the kind of job and and it may that may be related to either the kind of things that they want to do or 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 something that's important about having the increased income or or just being uh, uh, more of a, con- a contributing member uh, to society. But the relationship is is based on that. And then what I try to do is to lay out different approaches and to, and to explore. The person often has a, a lot of additional knowledge, and so it's, it's very much of a collaboration. But to lay out and explore different options or approaches to helping the person make progress towards uh, that goal. Now, there may be areas where I have particular expertise and where um, I, I think, for example, that uh, practicing skills, helping the person um, get out to a, a certain number or with a certain regularity in terms of, of job interviewing, um, and where something where I think that the practice can really be helpful or the, the process of engaging in uh, job search activities on a regular basis can, can be helpful. What I try to do is to get the person's buy-in to um, the goal as well as the process towards achieving that goal, and then to provide positive encouragement um, aimed at helping them marshal their energies, helping them do better one step after another step, as long as I'm convinced that this is part of their goal and that they also agree with the process involved, it's okay if they're trying hard. Um, If you're concerned that they're trying hard just to please you or that they're trying harder than they really uh, uh, um, are, are capable of or that there could be untoward effects, I think it's very important to check it out with the person. But I think that trying hard in its own right, I think that that's a good thing. And if we can inspire in people, uh, we don't want them to do it out of fear of, our, of getting accepted by us or, or something like that, but if, if we can inspire people to really put in extra effort into achieving goals and, and we can provide the support and the positive reinforcement for that, um, I think that's great. It won't backfire on you. Um, if you're concerned... If you're concerned about it, then I think having the kind of open relationship and being able to stop and say, "How is this working for you? You know, can you handle this? You know, I'm I'm worried about it or or something like that." I think that's important to be able to ask that. But I also think that that people um, uh, can benefit from working hard as as long as they're they're getting the support 
um, and uh, and help uh, along the way, and as long as it um, is consonant with their with their personal goals, what it is that they want to achieve. Okay, thank you. That's um, that's very helpful. Hello, Dr. Muser. I have a question to read to you from Kim. Right. Kim writes to us, having very recently applied for a new job, hopefully for the remainder of winter and spring. I am concerned about some personal attributes created by my acceptance of my disability, namely my tattoos and my nicotine addiction. What are parameters in general for such unique identifications in the workplace? You know, I can't say that I'm an expert on knowing the parameters, and it probably varies from one workplace to another uh, in terms of the, the exhibition of, of those those things, tattoos and, and the like, but I can say that these are, are very common um, uh, uh, kinds of, of body ornaments, uh, for example, that are, are worn by, by many people in the general uh, population. I, I don't think of those things as, as um, uh, they may occur more often in, in certain uh, uh, subcultures, uh, but they also occur more often in certain uh, geographic areas. Um, so, for example, I lived in uh, New Hampshire for 17 years, um, and uh, tattoos are a, um, a very common kind of a body ornament. They're, they're much more common now than they were 10 and, and, and uh, 20 years ago. Uh, but of the different places that I've lived, they're, they're certainly much more common um, in, um, in New Hampshire, uh, for example, than um, when I've lived in, in New York City. So um, I think that it's, it's important to to look at these as, as um, not necessarily reflecting anything in, in terms of one's uh, uh, a, a psychiatric uh, a past. I mean, there may be you know certain things that the tattoos themselves indicate that that generate curiosity. Um, but I think that that these are a a type of of one's uh, one's person, one's history that reflects uh, the um, the specific uh, a, a culture in, in in which they they lived for a period of time, um, and that uh, being able to um, bear them as a, a part of yourself. Um, with, with, without fear um, and um, in, a, in a matter of fact uh, a sort of way. Uh, in my experience, um, uh, most people in, in many walks of life accept such, um, such individuals uh, quite readily. Well, thank you for your answer, Kim, and thank you, everyone else, for submitting your questions. They've really been great. Well, we have about 15 minutes left, and I'm going to read one, uh, another question to you from Laura here. Laura writes, hello, Dr. Muser. I often use motivational interviewing within my job to not only serve individuals, but also when working with providers and employers. Could you advise and or provide your opinion on MI and its usefulness with respect to supported employment? Also, I really like the plug for loving kindness meditation. Thank you very much. Um, motivational interviewing is really a, a broad set of different techniques. Um, developed uh, over 20 years ago, um, and at first focused primarily on helping people make certain health behavior changes, um, such as um, smoking, substance use, uh, uh, foods one eats, and, and so on. And while there are many different aspects to motivational interviewing, the part of motivational interviewing that I've always most strongly related to and incorporated in, in my both clinical work, but I, I think in, in my, my relationships and other work as well, is the notion that uh, what determines when people change is when they decide that a change is, is critical in terms of their own 
personal values or, or goals. That we have many people um, in our lives in many different circumstances um, in which there may be pressure upon us to change um, or on other people to change. And that it's very difficult to get people to change if they don't see such change as uh, consistent with their, their own personal values and goals. In motivational interviewing, the idea is to take the focus off of some kind of uh, a predetermined kind of change that is supposed to be the focus of the, the interaction, such as a, a person using substances, and instead to refocus first on developing a relationship around an understanding of the person and understanding of what their goals are and the kind of things that, that they would like to, uh, uh, to, to live their life in, in accordance with or, or, or values. Then I think if the relationship can be built around, um, and this can be mutual as well as in uh, couples or in, in family work, if the relationship can be focused on helping the person make progress towards uh, those goals, that then opens up the door for exploring potential changes in behavior um, that may facilitate achieving those goals. Now, in motivational interviewing, one of the ideas is that when there's a change in behavior that might facilitate achieving a goal, helping the person come to an understanding uh, to develop an insight into the nature of that, uh, that change is sometimes uh, um, uh, facilitated when the person comes to the insight on their own rather than when it's directly pointed out by another person. So uh, in using motivational interviewing, I think what, that what's critical is having a connection with the other person, understanding what's important to the other person, and then exploring together what are changes or, or what are things that could be done to help the person uh, make better progress towards those goals. And to the extent that there are uh, changes in, in the person's uh, behavior um, and, and that in some way the person's behavior has, has been an obstacle to achieving their very goals, People are often open to changing that behavior when through exploration, genuine shared and collaborative exploration, they can see that some alternative uh, would be more effective in helping them achieve their, their goals. So that can relate to helping people find jobs, exploring the possible interference of using substances in, uh, uh, in achieving or in keeping a job, um, it could also refer to being an, an effective employment specialist. And what does it take to, to be an effective uh, employment specialist? Um, you could use many of the basic uh, strategies of motivational interviewing to help an employment specialist become more motivated and more effective, say, at job development. The person doesn't spend as much time developing jobs and isn't as effective as, a, as an employment specialist and has fewer uh, clients working and has less satisfaction uh, uh, from their job and, and less approval from their, their supervisor. So the, that's the, the kernel of motivational interviewing that, that I found most helpful in my work and, and which I think is, is applicable um, both to uh, clients that we work with as, as well as to many other relationships that we have. Understanding what's important to the other person and having part of your relationship or, or maybe the most critical part of your relationship focused on, on addressing that. Well, thank you for that answer. And Laura says, thank you so much for taking my question. I found it helpful with stigma and conquering fears on both sides of the interviewing table. I truly appreciate your insight. 
We have time left for two, maybe three more questions. And so I'm going to read you the next one that comes from the group uh, that Cecilia led up. They write, and I have to scroll up a second here, one of our consumers in the past has dealt with a heavy workload, related bullying that leads to coworkers using your disability against you while managers have done nothing. How do you overcome this? That is a um, that is a, another challenging uh, a question. Um, it's interesting because one of the questions that uh, we were sent to ahead of time um, addressed a similar situation. This one is a little bit more specific, but. Um, the other situation that was um, raised was what can one do to maintain wellness and recovery and survive in a hostile work environment where harassment and bullying occurs. Um, the first thing that I had suggested for the um, uh, a question that had been written in advance um, was to seek validation for uh, your perception of the experiences. Um, with the question that was just read out loud, uh, the, the description of it uh, sounded like um, the, that validation had already been sought. Um, but uh, in the absence of that, the idea is, is that uh, one may perceive other people as not being nice or potentially as, as bullying, but seeking some kind of validation to ensure that, that, um, that your perceptions are, are, are accurate, I, I think um, uh, certainly is, um, uh, is important or, or, or would be helpful. Um, I think that the most important thing um, is to uh, recognize that that bullying, workplace uh, bullying, either from uh, a coworkers uh, or from supervisors, and this could be related to one's disability, one's gender. It could be uh, forms of har of harassment and, and the like. But such bullying is is illegal, um, and it is important to seek protections. Um, if it's occurring to the extent uh, uh, to which it's really interfering with a person's uh, quality of life at work and, and potentially their ability to uh, to work. Um, there are um, uh, opportunities or, or avenues within the workplace in which one can seek uh, um, um, help, uh, uh, restitution or, or, or something like that, in terms of going to one's uh, a supervisor. Um, there are um, uh, rules and, and, and laws around uh, such interpersonal, uh, intimidating interpersonal behavior, um, and it is the supervisor's responsibility to provide um, a, a protection and to address those kinds of, of issues. Um, it's an even greater problem when that kind of uh, harassment or bullying uh, comes from the supervisor um, because uh, the, the natural person to go to in, in that circumstance uh, may not be easily um, accessible to the consumer. Um, in those situations, uh, I would suggest that uh, uh, seeking a counsel, getting the advice um, from other people in terms of how to handle the situation and who to go to um, would certainly be useful. There are human resources uh, departments and people within the human resources uh, departments um, whom one could go to in, in such circumstances. Um, but human resources departments are at least partly uh, in place to prevent companies from being sued. Uh, and so how effective the steps might be that, that could be taken are, are uncertain. Uh, however, it, it certainly is, a, um, um, is, is one a potential recourse in, um, in, in that situation. Um, I have uh, perhaps um, overstepped or by-stepped by uh, the most uh, direct possible way of, of responding, um, which would be to uh, attempt to speak to people directly 
um, about their behavior um, and about its effects. Um, this is not. This is perhaps uh, the most difficult thing to do, um, but I, I certainly wouldn't rule out the potential benefits of having a, a direct um, and honest um, uh, and uh, preferably not um, hostile communication or interaction uh, with a person um, in which um, the person expresses their feelings um, um, and uh, expresses their, their unhappiness or their dissatisfaction um, with another person's uh, a treatment of them, in, including um, any any uh, a bullying kind of behaviors or around the disability, and and makes a a, a frank um, and but explicit a request for the person to stop. Um, it may well that that people would not feel comfortable uh, doing that, uh, and there could of course be circumstances in which doing that might not be uh, felt uh, to be completely safe. Um, on the other hand, it might be very effective um, uh, at uh, um, uh, terminating that kind of behavior. It might also uh, win uh, new respect from, from people. Um, it's hard without getting into the specifics to discuss um, uh, when that would be advised. I certainly think that, that if the person feels an inclination to do that and could do it um, in, in a civil and, and socially skilled manner, um, it would it would be appropriate before taking things to um, uh, to another level, but again, that that requires a, a high level of um, of assertiveness uh, uh, skill um, and uh, a willingness to to try to deal with the situation uh, directly and and in person uh, before taking a further step. Answer, Dr. Muser. We only have time for one more short question, and then we'll have to conclude this session. Steve writes to us. I have a very motivated individual in a very rural area that only wants to be paid with the barter system. He has numerous delusions about money and banks. Would it be appropriate to job carve, carve in, with this request? Um, I'm glad that's a nice uh, short question, and, and the answer is yes. Um, barter system is um, recognized as an alternative payment system, um, and um, many many merchants um, working in, in, in many different walks of, of life are, are open to, um, to barter as an alternative to, uh, uh, to uh, financial uh, a payment for uh, services. Um, I was even reading, uh, much to my surprise, uh, a number of years ago that um, psychologists providing a psychotherapy um, uh, are permitted to, to barter um, in, in settings um, and as, as appropriate that the, that the goods um, are in uh, uh, appropriate value to the services uh, delivered. Uh, but I, th I think that the uh, potential of using a, a barter system rather than a direct payment um, is, is certainly viable, and, and if that's the way the person wanted to do it, um, and I could find people who are willing to, uh, uh, to engage in it, um, I think that would be a, a viable way of, 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 um, of helping the person achieve their goals. Well, thank you. I'd like to thank Dr. Muser for answering our questions today. Have a great day, everybody.